all you have. You are now tuned in to Marcus Rays. We just sat back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darth Vader has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. What's going on, my far, far away family? How is everyone doing today? I hope all is well on your side of the galaxy. Some new things are happening on mine. Going out of town in September for again. So that's always super exciting. Other than that, everything is about the same. Things are starting to get better on the other podcasts. If you've listened to the first couple episodes, you would know that the audio didn't sound the best. But now everything is starting to fall into place. So if you haven't had a chance to check it out, you might want to go give it a try. Now let's get to the important stuff. Like what is going on in the second book of the Bane trilogy? Because when we left Bane last week, Xana was exploding hands. Well, let me rephrase that. She exploded her cousin Tomcat's hand. So let's find out what's going on with Bane and Xana now. Prepare for re-entry turbulence. Kirtana warned them from the pilot seat of their shuttle. With a crew of only five, she had no need to use the shipboard intercom. She simply spoke loud enough for everyone aboard to hear. Although the Envoy-class shuttle carried only a handful of passengers, she was capable of comfortably transporting four times that many. The ship had been absorbed into the Jedi fleet sometime during the last few weeks of the Rusan campaign donated by an anonymous benefactor from Coruscant who had been charmed by Farfalla's urgent plea for resources to support the war effort. Christened the Starwig, she was a product of Talon Shipyards, a basic transport vessel capable of both suborbital flight and interstellar travel, thanks to her Class 12 hyperdrive. The fact that she'd been pressed into service was proof of just how desperate the Army of Light had become. Envoy-class shuttles were known for being practical and affordable, making them a favorite choice of independent merchants and wealthy recreational travelers. Their most distinguishing feature was an easy-to-use navigation and autopilot system, allowing users to plot and engage hyperdrive routes to hundreds of known worlds across the Republic with a simple push of a button. Unfortunately, they lacked heavy shielding or any significant armament, and were neither particularly fast nor maneuverable. Johan would have preferred something in a more military vein. He doubted the autonav would be any use should a Sith buzzard suddenly appear on the horizon. Logically, he knew this was highly unlikely. Every buzzard in Khan's fleet had been accounted for, either shot down, captured by the Army of Light, or seen fleeing the system at the tail end of the final battle. But scores of danger-filled flights through enemy-controlled airspace in the months before their ultimate victory had trained his mind to be on constant alert when approaching the planet's surface. From the way Irtana was white-knuckling the shuttle steering column, he knew he wasn't alone in his irrational fears. There was the faintest bump as they passed from the cold vacuum of space into the upper layers of Rusan's atmosphere and began their descent. Irtana worked the controls with a confident hand making subtle adjustments to their course as Johan studied the scanners skimming the ground below them, looking for signs of life. Four other craft were visible on the ship's monitors. Like the Starwake, each was crewed by a four- to six-person rescue team sent by Farfalla to help clean up the aftermath of the war. Okay, this chapter starts off with the description of Artana's ship as they travel back down to Rusan. It wasn't really a war-type ship, it was more of a passenger cruiser or freight ship. He thought that it would be better off if the ship was designed for battle. And I don't see why he would be complaining. He ain't even supposed to be there. If you remember, Farfola told him that he couldn't go. But he used a Jedi mind trick on Artana 
so she thought it was right for him to go. Now, he is uptight and nervous. He wanted a ship that could handle an attack from a Sith buzzard, even though all the buzzards had been counted for. It is explained like he had PTSD or something. Then to top it off, there were four other ships sent by Farfella. Each of them has four to six passenger crews. So there's over 20 people all together, and he's still acting like a scared little kid. If I was a Jedi Master, I wouldn't want him as my Padawan. We've got movement on the ground. Johan called out as unidentified blips popped up on his screen. Transmitting coordinates. Give me details, Yertana ordered, banking the shuttle around in a wide arc that brought them in line with the people on the ground. Two walkers on foot, Johan informed her. Can't tell if they're friendly from up here. Taking us down, Yertana replied. Locating and helping injured survivors was the team's first priority. Providing reconnaissance reports to fleet command came second. And accepting the willing surrender of enemy troops was a distant third. The shuttle nose dipped, and the acceleration pushed Johan back into his seat as they dived in to get a closer look at the figures. Irtana took them in low and fast, a military maneuver that pushed the civilian vessel to her limits. I've got a visual... Johan reported as a pair of tiny, indistinct shapes on the ground became visible through the shuttle's cockpit viewpoint. Bordon lifted himself up out of his seat and leaned forward over the back of Johan's chair to get a view as the shuttle plunged toward the rapidly growing figures. As it drew closer, the details came into focus. A man and a woman, each wearing light armor and running hard. The roar of the rapidly descending shuttle's engines caused the two on the ground to stop running and turn back to look up at them. An instant later, they threw themselves face first to the dirt as the shuttle swooped in less than 10 meters from the ground and buzzed them. Cursing under her breath as she struggled with the clumsy controls, Irtana veered around sharply and brought them into land less than 50 meters away from their quarry. Through the window, Johan saw the pair slowly climb back to their feet as the pilot cut the engines. The woman said something to the man, who nodded in agreement. Then, they raised their hands and began marching slowly toward the vessel. They were dressed like members of Khan's Brotherhood, but Johan didn't feel the presence of the dark side about them. Minions of the Sith, he said. Mercenaries, probably. Could be a trap, Bordon warned. Griffing mercenaries have no honor. I don't think so, Johan replied. If there was any danger here, he would have felt some kind of disturbance in the force. But I think they just want to surrender. Slag-sucking scum, Bordon spat. Fire the engines up and run them over. No, Johan exclaimed when he saw Irtana reaching for the ignition switch. We need to question them, he reminded her. See what they know. Then what? Bordon demanded darkly. Then we take them to Farfalla and lock them up with the rest of the prisoners. <coughs> Bordon slammed his hand against the cockpit wall. These spawn came to my world, my home, to kill my people for profit! They'd cut our throats without a second thought if they had the upper hand. Irtana agreed. We're not like them, Johan said. We don't kill prisoners. My wife died fighting monk whelps like these, Bordon shouted. Now you want to show them mercy? Hate leads to the dark side, Johan replied, reciting the wisdom of the Jedi. 
but the words lacked power coming from the mouth of a 19-year-old Padawan. And even as he said them, he knew how empty they sounded. Bordon threw his hands up in frustration, then let himself fall back angrily into his seat. Is that why you're here? He grumbled in disgust. To keep us in line? To make sure we don't stray from your precious light sideways? Is that why Farfalla sent you along? He didn't send me. I came on my own, Johan thought. He turned in his seat to look back at Bordon, who stared intently at the floor, refusing to meet his gaze. His two sons, however, glared at the young Jedi with venom in their eyes. Now their first priority was to help friendly survive. Providing information to the fleet came in second, and the third was to deal with what was left of the enemy. So when two people walking popped up on the screen, they headed in that direction. They did not know if they were the friendly or the enemies. Ortana flipped the ship around and landed. The two people that were walking put their hands up. Johan didn't sense the dark side in them, but they were wearing Sith armor, so they knew they were Sith soldiers. Bordon, one of the others on the ship and native of Rusan, automatically said there might be a trap. I'm guessing Bordon is one of those that take no crap type of guys, and he might be a bit paranoid. Johan states that he hasn't felt any disturbance in the force. He thinks they just want to surrender. Bordon tells Ortana to start the ship and run them over. I'm getting the feeling that he doesn't like the Sith very much, or their minions. He has a bunch of weird things that he calls him. Shutter spawn, muckwops, and slag-sucking scum. Very graphic words that I can't tell you what they mean. But Johan says they have to be questioned, so they can't just kill them. Both Ortana and Bordon disagree. Ortana states that they would all get killed if the shoe was on the other foot, and the Sith soldiers had the upper hand. Johan tries to tell them that that's the path to the dark side, but he doesn't say with enough authority to make the others understand. This is where we find how Bordon's wife was killed in the war. There's no way some punk kid, Jedi or not, is going to stop me if someone killed my wife. Ain't gonna happen. So I feel you, Bordon. And I feel sorry for the kids that have to deal with everything. Who looked at Johan like he was the enemy now. He understood their anger. The Sith had brought war to Rusan. A war that had taken everything they knew and cared about. Their homes, their livelihoods, and of course their mother. What Bordon and his sons didn't see was that these nameless soldiers couldn't be held responsible for all the horrors and tragedies that had brought their world crashing down. Whatever their crimes, these two didn't deserve to be made accountable for the actions of Khan and his brotherhood. It was the Sith Masters, the followers of the Dark Side, who were truly to blame. Yet as he looked into the boys' hate-filled stares, he knew there was no hope of making them understand. Not while all that they had suffered was still fresh in their minds. Johan had come to Rusan to hunt down any members of the Brotherhood who might have survived the Thought Bomb. He intended to continue the work of General Hoth, his master and mentor, and eliminate the Lords of the Sith, ending the threat of the Dark Side forever. Now, however, he recognized a greater mission. He had to save Bordon and his sons from themselves. These were honest, decent people, but driven by hate and anger, they would butcher their helpless foes in cold blood if he didn't stop them. Johan knew that once their anger faded, the memory of their bloody vengeance would haunt them. Guilt and self-loathing would eat away at Bordon and his boys until it eventually destroyed them. Johan wasn't about to let that happen. 
We love bringing you more Star Wars, and it is because of our partners that we can do this week after week. So we invite you to be one of those partners. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep this going. Your support will give us the ability to create future episodes, as well as provide you with the best sounding show on your playlist. And to express our appreciation, we will give you a shout out on our mid-series show that we do in the middle of every book. You will also be automatically entered in all future giveaways. All you have to do is go to the show notes and click that listener support link. Now let's get back to the show. Turning his attention back to Irtana, he saw hate in her eyes as well. However, hers was a cold, calculated emotion. A professional soldier regarding an enemy. He recognized she wouldn't kill prisoners on her own, but she also wouldn't do anything to stop the others. And he knew what he had to do. This isn't why Farfalla sent you, he reminded the pilot in a low voice. You're supposed to be helping the survivors. Irtana eyed him suspiciously but didn't say anything. Johan was reluctant to use the force to bend her will to his own again. Subconsciously, she might be more aware of his interference a second time and more likely to resist. Besides, it was important that she truly believe in what he was telling her. Compelling her obedience was a temporary solution, and one that could ultimately cause her to resent or mistrust him and the rest of the Jedi. Let me out, and I'll take the mercenaries into custody. Johan said, offering up a plan. Contact the fleet, and they'll send another ship to pick up the three of us. The words weren't easy for him to say. He'd defied Farfalla, a Jedi Master, to come to this world. The last thing he wanted was to leave Rusan now, so soon after arriving. Yet he was willing to make that sacrifice if it would prevent Bordon and his sons from giving in to their rash and reckless emotions. It was his duty as a Jedi to protect their lives, even if it meant abandoning his own personal crusade. You and the others should take the shuttle and head south to the battlefield, he continued. Go help the injured. That's what you're here for. Yurtana hesitated, then gave a curt nod of acknowledgement. Johan was barely more than a boy. The long, thin braid in his hair clearly marked that he had not yet completed his Padawan training. But he was still a member of the Jedi Order. That counted for a lot among the Republic troops. He'd been relying on that to help her see the wisdom of his words. Okay, it states that Johan understood how they felt. How could he understand how they felt? Jedi have no attachment, so how in the world would he know? They lost their home, and they lost their mother, brought on his wife. I think I would have shot him, then shot the two soldiers, then went about my business. They could have just blamed it on the thought bomb, and no one would have ever known. But Johan knew that it was the Sith Masters they were to blame. Wait a minute, a follower is just as responsible as the one they follow. They didn't have to follow Khan in the Brotherhood, they made that choice. So they should suffer the consequences. He knew he couldn't get them to understand, and he didn't come back to Rus on the Ark. Johan came back to search for any remaining Sith. Even though the evidence says they're all dead, he has a set in his head that some of them survive. But then Johan has an epiphany. He realizes his true mission is to save Bordon and his sons. Johan must rescue them from themselves. Look at the young Padawan thinking like a Jedi. If he would have just kept looking for Bane, he could have prevented the whole reign of Palpatine. But how could he have known? So he turns his attention to Ertana. He tells her that is not why Farfella had sent them. He was going to use a Jedi mind trick on her to get her to comply, but then thought twice about it. He wanted her to trust him and the Jedi. Then he says the dumbest thing ever. He says, call the fleet so they can send another ship. 
he will stay with the two soldiers until the other ship arrives. Now Farfalla's gonna find out he did not follow orders, and he's gonna be in big trouble. Confident that Ertana would keep Bordon and his sons out of trouble, Johan got up from his chair and made his way to the rear of the Starwake. He did his best to ignore the accusing eyes of the two angry young men as he waited for the shuttle's exit hatch to open. When it finally did, he leapt out and landed nimbly on the ground, then made his way quickly toward the pair standing patiently nearby, their hands still raised high above their heads. Once he was clear of the vessel, the engines roared to life, and the ship lifted into the air and took off, much to the dismay of the two mercenaries. Where are they going? The woman demanded, her voice a high-pitched squeak of panic. No, they can't leave us here! Her arms dropped back to her sides, as did her companions. For a second, Johan worried that they might make a move for their weapons, but then he realized they were too distraught over the Starwake's exit to even think about attacking him. Don't let them go! The man shouted, turning away from Johan to watch as the craft flew off and out of sight, then whirling back to implore the young Jedi once more. Make them turn around! Tell them to come back! There was a desperate urgency in his voice that mirrored the tone of his companion. Don't worry, the young Jedi assured them. Another ship is on the way. We can't stay here, the woman insisted. There's no time! He'll find us! He'll find us! It's okay, Johan explained, holding up a calming hand. I can protect you. I'm a Jedi. The woman raised an eyebrow and gave him a skeptical glance. The slight young man widened his stance, placed his hands on his hips, and thrust out his chest, hoping it would make him appear noble and impressive. He tried to project the image of confident self-assurance he'd often admired in Hoth and the other masters. The man grabbed Johan by the arm, tugging it like a child clinging to his mother's apron. We have to get off this planet, he said, the words coming out in a terrified whisper. We have to go now! Johan shook free of the man's grasp with only minor difficulty. There was something unsettling about this whole encounter. From the way these two were dressed, it was clear they were experienced soldiers for hire. He suspected they were deserters from the recent battle, minions of the Sith who'd fled the instant the Army of Light had broken their ranks. But their flight would have been an act of opportunistic preservation rather than fear or cowardice. Still, these combat veterans, accustomed to facing death and bloodshed, were acting like traumatized villagers after a slaver raid. So Johan exits the ship and the ship flies away. The Sith mercenaries start screaming, where are they going? Johan tells them to calm down, another ship is on the way. The two soldiers tell him that they need to leave now. Johan tells them not to worry, he is a Jedi. He will make sure that they are safe. Then he sticks out his chest to convince them, trying to look confident and reassuring. They are both like we are going to die. Yeah, I don't think that I would have trusted this kid to protect me. But really at this point, what can they do? This is when the man grabs Johan by his arm and tells him that they need to get off the planet now. If I was Johan, I would have whipped out my saber and struck him down. How am I supposed to know he ain't attacking me? But he has a duty to the two standing in front of him, so he really can't do that. But he felt like something was wrong. These were two soldiers acting like villagers that just got raided. Not the battle-hardened killers of the Sith Ark. Even if you are a Jedi, you can't save us. The woman muttered with a slow shake of her head. You can't protect us from him. Who? Joe had wanted to know. 
Who are you talking about? The man glanced around quickly, as if he was afraid someone might be listening. A Dark Lord of the Sith, he hissed. One of the Brotherhood? Johan asked, barely able to contain his eagerness. Are you saying a Sith Master survived the Thought Bomb? The man nodded. He killed Lurgan and Hanch, fried them with lightning from his fingers. I knew it, Johan thought triumphantly. I knew it. He had a lightsaber too, the woman added. Sliced Pad and Darren wide open. She hesitated for a moment, shuddering at the memory. Rael got his head cut clean off. Johan was about to ask for more details, but the sound of a rapidly approaching ship momentarily distracted him. He glanced up to see a bivouac troop transport swooping in for a landing. Seconds after it touched down, three Republic soldiers jumped out, weapons at the ready. He recognized the senior officer in the trio. Major Orton Leeds, one of the highest-ranking non-Jedi in the Army of Light's Second Legion. These the prisoners? The Major asked gruffly, pointing his blaster rifle at the mercenaries. Johan nodded. Leeds gave a tilt of his head and his subordinates moved in quickly to slap restraints on the enemy soldiers. Neither made any attempt to resist. Once their wrists were secured, they were frisked and stripped of their weapons, then marched off toward the vessel. The whole encounter was conducted with the efficiency and competence that were the hallmarks of all troops serving under Major Leeds' command. You picked up Ertana's message, Johan asked, as he watched the Sith minions being led away. We were in the area, the officer replied. Farfalla sent me to come get you. Something in his tone caught the young Jedi's attention. Am I in trouble? The officer shrugged. Hard to say. You Jedi tend to keep a tight rein on your emotions. But I bet the General wasn't too happy when he found out you disobeyed a direct order and snuck down here. Don't worry. Johan replied confidently. He'll change his tune when he hears what those prisoners have to tell him. Okay, here's where the plot takes a leap. The woman tells Johan even if he is a Jedi, he will not be able to protect him from the man. When Johan asked appear the obvious question, they start rambling about a Sith Lord killing their friends. Johan thinks to himself he was right, and he should be searching for the Sith, and finish the work of his master, Hoth. They go on to explain what happens to their friend. At this point, a transport shows up to pick them up. A few of the Army of the Light soldiers jump out, pointing their blasters at the two. Then Johan sees Major Orton Leeds, one of the highest-ranking non-Jedis. He asked Johan if these were the prisoners. Then the other Republic soldiers slap the cuffs on them and take them to the ship. The Major explains to Johan that Farfella told him to go pick Johan up. Johan asked the Major if he was in trouble. That has to be the dumbest question ever, and the response that Johan got explained why. Jedi do not show emotion, so how would he know if Farfella was mad? Bane throttled back the swoop bike's engine as they approached the small clearing that served as the Valsen's landing site. Originally presented as a gift to Lord Gordas, the vessel had been commandeered by Bane when he left the Academy on Korriban to seek out the knowledge of the ancient Sith. Cordus had never dared to try to take it back, and his cowardice had simply confirmed Bane's decision to abandon his studies and turn his back on the Brotherhood. He brought the swoop to a stop 20 meters from the ship. Xana released her grip on his waist and jumped off, then stood staring at the vessel. Bane wasn't paying attention to her. The last ten minutes, he'd had trouble focusing on anything but the pain carving up his skull. 
He'd hoped delving into the depths of the shimmering orb left behind by the Thought Bomb might somehow relieve the headaches. But if anything, they'd gotten worse since their visit to the cave. At least, he'd been able to confirm that Khan was truly dead. That made it easier for him to dismiss the ghostly form that materialized just then on the far side of the clearing. Pale beneath the late afternoon sun, it was undeniably the image of the man who'd founded the Brotherhood of Darkness. Bane knew it was nothing but a hallucination, yet there was something compelling about the figure as it crossed the clearing to stop a meter or so away from the ship. The spirit turned and fixed him with a steady gaze, then reached out a beckoning hand. She's beautiful, Xana breathed. Darth Bane snapped his head around in surprise, but his apprentice was staring raptly at the Valsin herself. When Bane turned his attention back to where Khan had been standing, the specter had vanished once again. I never thought I'd be leaving Rusan on a ship like this, Xana said. You aren't, Bane said as he stepped off the swoop. There was nothing he could do about the hallucinations, other than act as if they didn't exist. The young girl turned to look back at him, confused. We're not taking your ship? I am, her master replied. But you must find your own way off this world. It took a moment for his words to register with the girl. When they did, her expression became one of utter shock. I... I can't come with you? The big man shook his head. Spurred on by Xana's discovery of the ancient tome in the Sith camp, he'd come up with a plan. He was heading for Duxon, Onderon's oversized moon, to seek out the lost tomb of Freedon Nad. But he had other ideas for his apprentice. But why not? What did I do? The young girl choked out, clearly on the verge of tears. Why are you leaving me? This is part of your training, Bane explained. To understand the dark side, you must suffer through hardship and struggle. You don't have to abandon me to make me suffer, she countered. Take me with you. The strength of the dark side lies with the power of the individual, he reminded her. The force comes from within. You must learn to draw on it yourself. I will not always be there to teach you. But you said there were always two. Xana insisted. One to embody the power, the other to crave it. She learned quickly, and Bane was pleased to see she had already committed so many of his lessons to memory. But reciting the words meant nothing if she didn't understand the truth behind them. Why do you follow me? He asked, posing a question to lead her down the path of wisdom. Xana thought about her answer for several seconds, carefully considering everything he'd already taught her. To unleash my full potential, she said at last. To learn the ways of the dark side. Bane nodded. And when I no longer have anything to teach you, what will happen then? Her brow furrowed in concentration, but this time the answer wouldn't come. I don't know, she finally admitted. There will come a time when your training ends, he told her. There will come a day when you have learned all the lessons, when all my knowledge of the dark side will be yours, and that day you will challenge me for the title of master. 
and only one of us will survive the encounter. The girl's eyes opened wide. Then they narrowed as she focused intently on what he was saying. You have the potential to surpass me, he continued. If you achieve your potential, I will cease to be of use to you. You will need to find new sources of knowledge. You will have to seek out a new apprentice so that you may pass on the secrets of the Sith Order to another. When your power eclipses mine, I will become expendable. This is the rule of two. One master and one apprentice. When you are ready to claim the mantle of Dark Lord as your own, you must do so by eliminating me. The confrontation is inevitable, he concluded. It is the only way the Sith can survive. It is the way of the dark side. Xana didn't say anything. From her expression, Bane saw she was still struggling to comprehend why her master would train her, knowing that she would ultimately betray him. But she didn't need to understand, not yet. Right now, she needed only to obey him. Make your way to Onderon, Bane instructed her. I will meet you there in ten standard days. Then he thought, after I find Nad's tomb on Duxin. How am I supposed to get there? She protested. You are the chosen one, the anointed heir to the legacy of our order. You will find a way. And if I don't, then you will have proven yourself unworthy of being my successor. And I will seek out another apprentice. There was nothing more to say. Bane turned his back on her and headed for his ship. Zana merely watched him go, not speaking. As he walked away, he could feel her anger building, becoming a raging inferno of hate as he climbed into the cockpit. The heat of her fury brought a grim smile to Bane's lips as he fired up the engines. The Valsen took to the air, leaving Zana behind. A tiny figure on the planet's surface, staring after the ship, standing motionless, as if she'd been carved from cold, hard stone. Now the chapter finally jumps to Bane and Zed, and they are pulling up on the ship that Bane stole from Cortis. When the suit bike finally stops, Zana jumps off and starts to stare at the ship. Bane's head was hurting so bad that he didn't even know what was going on. He thought that touching the aura might make them go away, but that was not the case. Well, duh. All that he found out was that all the Siths were dead. To me, it was just a big waste of time, and he is still seeing things that aren't there. Xana was admiring the ship when she says that she never thought that she would be leaving Rusan in a ship that was that beautiful. This is where Bane becomes a real jerk because he tells her that she is not. When she asks why, he tells her that she needs to find her own way off the planet. Okay, I recall my statement I made a few episodes ago when I said I wish I could have been Bane's apprentice. I would have been super mad if he left me there. It sounds like Xana was about to cry when she asked him why she couldn't go. Bane finishes explaining to her the rule of two. Bane was going to Duxin to freedom Nash's tomb, and she was going to have to use cunning to get off the planet. She was going to have to draw upon the dark side if she wanted to escape Rusan. Then he tells her to make her way to Onderon, and he would meet her there in 10 days. When she asks how she was supposed to get there, he tells her that she will find a way, and if she doesn't, then she is not fit to be a Sith. Then he gets on the ship and flies away, leaving her fuming in a fire of hatred. And that's where the chapter comes to an end. I'm going to say it, this is one of the most boringest chapters ever, and a really, really messed up chapter. 
first off, Bane just left Xana to figure out everything for herself. This was so wrong. But there was no action in this chapter at all. Not even a hint of action. I won't even lie, a few times I almost fell asleep listening to this one. But it did set us up for the chapters to come. So I can't say it was a complete waste of time. But I am happy that it is finally over. Now we can get to the quote for this week. And it comes to us from the late great Mickey Rooney. He said, you always pass failure on the way to success. Wow, that's all I have to say. Think about that for a moment. Let it reside in your mind for a few minutes. That has to be one of the greatest dumb quotes ever. But it makes a lot of sense. You got to the place where you have succeeded. You know you're not a failure. You have already beaten the failure stage. When you fail, you haven't succeeded. So if you have succeeded, you must not have failed. It is brilliant but nuts at the same time. The only way to succeed is to pass failure. Okay, enough playing around. This is what it truly means. If you are working towards a goal and that goal is a place of success, then you left the failure it took to get there behind you. It takes a thousand tries to succeed. Now, I'm almost sure it's not that many, but 99% of the time, your first try doesn't do as well as you like it to. Maybe not the second, third, fourth, fifth, a hundred. You will probably fail, but that doesn't mean you just give up and stop trying. You keep on doing new things until one works. So you have got to pass failure to get to success. That's what the quote is saying, I think. Shoot, what do I know? Well, I do know this. This is about the 500 thing that I've tried to do in my life and the first one that I truly had any type of success at. Maybe not in money, but in satisfaction for what I am doing. Okay, enough of all that. We will continue next week with Chapter 6. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Sway. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can find us and subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shit and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel, sound designed by Theodore Thompson, researched by Tammy Turner. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.